The passage on which the scripture, or the scripture on which the teaching is based this morning is John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. You can turn there with me either in your Bibles or in your worship guides as it's printed for you. And as you turn there, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 19, or 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you hold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. but These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Three times in our passage... And John emphasizes that Jesus says the words to those gathered with him, peace be with you. Peace be with you occurs in verse 19, in verse 21, and in verse 26. What does that mean? Is it a casual greeting? Is there more significance attached? 25 years ago, Nancy and Richard Langard went out to dinner at a little Italian restaurant to celebrate good news. They were sharing with uh, Nancy's sister, Jean, and Nancy's mother that they were expecting. Uh, Nancy and Richard had uh, looked forward to having kids. She was 25. They had planned a big family. But after dinner that night at the Italian restaurant, they returned home to find an intruder who was surprised as uh, he was proceeding to rob their home. And he forced them into the basement, and he shot Richard in the head, and he emptied two bullets into Nancy's belly. They both died, but not before Nancy crawled over to her husband and wrote in her own blood a heart with the letter U in it, which is how she signed all her letters to Richard. Now with that in mind, peace be with you. What does that mean? Really? What is Jesus talking about? And how is that supposed to be understood when we relate it to those events in our lives and in the lives of those around us that don't come anywhere near to agreeing or corresponding with the notion of peace? 
It seems like Jesus is either selling a junk bond for which you are a fool for buying into, or we don't understand necessarily what Jesus is after when he speaks of peace. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word peace. I tend to think that my kids are occupied, I'm smoking a cigar, and I have a good book on the patio. Are these not our notions of peace, of tranquility, of nothing interfering with what we want to do? That's how we often describe peace, but I think we would all be quick to say that's not exactly what Jesus is after when he says, peace be to you. I don't think Jesus died and rose from the dead to ensure that I could have quiet times on my patio. Jesus is using the Greek translation of the Hebrew notion of shalom, which was a huge notion, a deeply ingrained notion, in Jewish culture. Shalom, which described peace, was not simply tranquility. Shalom was a settling of all accounts. It was a, a, a harmony to relationship between oneself and God and to others. And out of that harmony of relationship, things flowed as they were supposed to flow. And this is the notion that Jesus is drawing upon. And because we have a difficult time reconciling what Jesus is is saying with the lives that we experience, I want to suggest to you that we have not labored hard to understand peace as Jesus intended peace to be understood. In fact, as we dig into this passage, we're going to realize that because we often don't understand the world as Jesus intended us to understand the world, then we don't really get that peace. You and I both know all too well that from week to week, from month to month, all too often we have that nagging feeling inside that yes, we confess that Jesus is Lord and confess that we pursue Him, and yet you are filled with anxiety and fear and loneliness, and you wonder if really this, if He does anything this side of glory. This is what John wants to communicate, communicate emphatically is that absolutely Jesus does this something this side of glory. He's in fact John is beginning to summarize and wind up his gospel. And that's what we're doing for our sermon series in John. And so John is is this is very much kind of a big picture of what he's been articulating and he he gives perhaps one of the most outstanding and deepest and fullest richest summaries of the good news of Jesus in three verses that may exist in all of of scripture. And so this is what we want to look at. And the two things that you have to see as we look at John, um, this last part of John chapter 20, is John is telling us that for those who are disciples of Christ moving forward, Jesus, yes, he's going to move on. But for those who he leaves behind to carry out the kingdom work of God, there is new mission, there is new creation, and there is new community. And all three of those aspects are, are critically important to understanding uh, the peace that Jesus is talking about. If you leave out one of those pieces, you're going to be missing out on the peace, and it's part of the angst that you experience. So let's start with the first one. How do we see new mission occurring in this passage as Jesus addresses the disciples who are gathered in the upper room? Look at verse 21. Jesus says, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What does it mean? Jesus has given up all of his rights and privileges to engage the incarnation. Saying, I possess everything and I surrender it. I take on the humility and the shame of, of entering this broken creation, of being despised and mocked and spit upon. I will go to the cross 
also that I might extend God's love and be obedient to the Father. That is how he was sent. So in word, he communicates the message that God is sovereign in rescuing his people. And in action, he lives out a humility that testifies to the love of God. And this is what we are called to. Jesus says, as I was sent, so I am sending you. What I've done is a paradigm for you to follow. That you would pick up your cross and follow after me. as In the same way that we saw when Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And said, this is a lesson for you to carry out. What I'm doing is an example for you. So we are called to embody the paradigm that Jesus places for us. And that paradigm is nothing but a willing sacrifice of one's rights and privileges to extend the authority in the kingdom of God. That is the paradigm that Jesus puts forth. So to the extent that we would retain what we believe are our rights and privileges, and to the extent that we would place other priorities ahead of the kingdom of God, we are doing nothing but rebelling against God. We are doing nothing but mocking the sacrifice of Jesus. We are not participating in the mission that we have been entrusted with and called to. Jean Bishop was Nancy's sister. The woman who died, who surprised the intruder. Nancy was a corporate lawyer who uh, was very successful uh, in her profession. But she knew, being a devout Christian, that a couple of things were required of her. One was that she forgive. And so she knew that she had to forgive this individual and said, I'm going to forgive him. And she liked that idea anyway because she would say from day one that uh, to not forgive, she knew, would, be, uh, would, be, would cost her more than it cost him. In other words, she said, uh, why would I hate this individual and be angry at him? Why would I give him that privilege? He's not even worthy of those emotions. And she uses the often used cliche, you know, not forgiving someone is, is taking uh, poison and waiting for the other person to die. This is how she described herself processing her need to forgive. And so she said, from day one, I forgive. And she, uh, she wanted to participate in mission for it to mean something. And so people, churches, groups started to ask her to tell her story. And so she started to travel around and to share how she had suffered this incredible tragedy and how she had forgiven this individual. But had Jean really, really taken up a new mission? Was she really doing something that, that spoke of understanding new creation? I'll tell you that I don't think she really was. And I think she comes to realize that she really wasn't. And one way, one reason I think this, interestingly, is uh, that for, I think, 12 years, Jean will communicate to the world that she's forgiven the individual. You know who, who she didn't communicate it to? The individual. Jean eventually would have to come to a bit of a reckoning about how she was experiencing the tragedy that happened in her life but what I want you to see in Jean Sar is what she actually does. You know, she suffers this incredible tragedy. And so she says, well, I'm a believer. There are certain things expected of me in my relationship with Jesus. I am going 
to make sure that I'm doing the right thing and I'm going to make sure that I am engaging in mission. But what she was doing was assigning herself her own mission. She was assigning herself her own road by which she thought she could make something of the loss and tragedy that she had suffered rather than actually going to God with it. In fact, what she was doing while was baptized with the image of being a very Christian endeavor was nothing other than keeping herself from actually engaging God. She didn't understand that something radical happens in the resurrection of Jesus that creates a mission and creates something far bigger than she can manufacture in her own strength and in her own will. And this is the new creation that is also at the four in John chapter 20, which we have to now consider. So we see Jesus giving a new mission, as I was sent, so I am sending you. But he also speaks of new creation. Verse 22, Jesus says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, now if you are an uh, armchair theologian, few bells and whistles just rent you got a little uncomfortable because if you've never noticed this before you've suddenly realized a point of great dispute in the church and a point of consternation and this breathing out of the holy spirit on the disciples right wasn't isn't this what happens in acts 2 isn't this the thing we call pentecost why is it happening here in john chapter 20 Well, we're not going to belabor this point, but just to let you know, you have a range of answers from uh, Jesus is giving a special portion of the Holy Spirit to the apostles that is handed down in apostolic succession and grants only those in apostolic succession the ability to forgive sins. And so you get a Roman Catholic idea of you must go to a priest to receive, uh, to be granted absolution of forgiveness of sins all the way to the other side of the gamut where some theologians would say, uh, this is symbolic. Jesus really isn't handing out anything. He just is kind of like, hey, here's a preview of coming attractions. Um, I find that particularly offensive uh, as if John... Anyway, again, we're not going to belabor this point. There are lots of options in church history of how to understand this passage. And it's not an easy needle to thread because we also write... Because once you start going down this road, don't we advocate the one dispensation of the Spirit and not multiple receptions of the Holy Spirit? Right? Of course, yes, we do. Right? But what I think what you have to say is, yes, this is a real dispensation of the Spirit, and so is Acts 2. Right? It is. And this John is telling his story in a certain way. Some of you have come up over the last few weeks because what's very exciting to me is you're reading your Gospels closely. And you started to realize... Uh, there are a few pretty big differences in the Gospels. Yes, there are. Right? Our expectations of uh, historical writing are very different than those that existed in the ancient world. Right? If you pick up a book on history, you expect that some scholar has done a bunch of research and homework, and he's reporting to you things that actually happen in the way that they happened. And we've come to realize that that's very difficult to do. Number one, uh, you know, and funny people realize this. One of the people who understand this are police officers. Because a police officer who's gone to the site of an accident and had to do interviews, has asked five different people what happened here. He gets five different reports of what has occurred. 
The notion that we relay things as they happen has pretty much been entirely debunked. We are highly interpretive beings, and when we see something or experience something, we often lend uh, some degree of interpretation to that. Even more than that, brain science has absolutely demonstrated to us that every time we visit a memory, we change the memory. Right? You don't have a save function, you have a save as function. Every time you open that file, something happens to it, it gets saved as a new file. Right? So we don't actually record history that well. And that's with priorities of trying to do it as best as we possibly can. And the ancient world just didn't function with those priorities. Right? You open up the Gospel of John and Jesus is in Jerusalem. What's he doing in Jerusalem? In the synoptics, he never gets to Jerusalem until the end. Right? And we could spend the rest of the day talking about oddities and, um, and these kinds of aspects that exist in the Gospels. But the point is, they didn't function, they didn't write history the way that uh, we tend to expect history to be written. And if we go down that road and camp out there, we miss so much. Right? We can debate for the rest of the day about whether or not there are two dispensations of the Spirit, but that's not what John is after. Right? John is communicating something to you far more profound. And I can't wait to meet John because I think he's going to be so frustrated with people. He's going to be like, you were worried about that. Did you not see how artistic what I did was? And you didn't appreciate it. And so let me help you try to see how profound and artistic what John is doing. I asked my kids last night at dinner, I said, huh, can you think of another story in the Bible where God breathes on someone and life is given? They said, oh, yeah, of course, Genesis. And that's exactly the point. John has, has arranged, has organized in part his entire gospel around Genesis. Right? In other words, it, at the beginning of John, you have, in the beginning, a direct quote from Genesis was the Word, and the Word was with God. And he proceeds then, as we've talked about, to uh, organize his gospel around uh, seven signs or seven wonders that reflect the seven days of creation. And he gets to the end of those seven days, and here Jesus is resurrected and with the disciples, and Jesus breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And what John is communicating is this beautiful picture. of He's, he's essentially saying, you know what? Creation was never finished. It got interrupted in a certain sense. And so you, the notion that I think John is trying to communicate is this. When God enters into creation, he makes the land... He makes the sky, and then he fills the sky with light. He makes the air, and he fills it with birds. He makes the land and fills it with animals. And he makes the sea and fills it with fish. And then he makes humanity, and he gives, he gives Adam and Eve life, but he doesn't fill them. Creation stops, Adam and Eve sin, things get thrown off track. And you have essentially a very long rescue agenda to get back to the point at which God could actually recommence, so to speak, with the filling of His creation with Himself. Jesus is breathing upon the disciples, and it's not simply life this time, but it is actually the Spirit of God that now indwells them. And John says, this is what we've been after all along. This is what we have been pursuing and trying to reach, is the actual completion of, of God's redemption of humanity, which means that we don't need a temple anymore for God to dwell amongst His people. He dwells actually in His people. The Spirit takes up residence in humanity. We participate 
in a profound and mystical way in the divine itself. That is new creation. John is saying, listen, you talk about recreation, it's, it's even more than recreation. It's not just recreation, it's creation completed as the way it was only always intended to be. This is what's occurred, and it's a fulfillment. Now we start to understand, what was Jesus talking about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3? Hey, you must be born again. You must be born of water and of spirit. Yeah. And you're only born again when the spirit actually comes upon you. Right? When that life comes upon you. Or Ezekiel, when Ezekiel sees this valley of dry bones and God commands to him, prophesy to the dry bones, live. Ezekiel says, how can this be? And It's the Spirit of God being blown on the disciples. It's only at this point that they begin to live. That creation is recreated and hence in an entirely new direction. And this is what Gene Bishop had to come to realize. But I've already told you that she, she came to realize it. Um, well, she had trouble coming to realize it because she so immediately occupied herself with distraction. She so immediately occupied herself with a mission that she assigned and a direction that she should go rather than, um, rather than going to God. And this is, this is such a description of the world in which we exist and the ways that our, our, our heart function. Jason Smith described this well. He, um, Jason is, is not a believer. He was a, a high school teacher in Northern California who was um, severely addicted to drugs. Uh, sometimes, with um, girls, people take drugs that they shouldn't, that aren't actually helpful to them, but make them they feel better. And then they become addicted to them, which means they need them. And Jason was seriously addicted to those drugs. He writes... Uh, he writes that he applied for a pretty elusive, or not elusive, competitive teaching job uh, for which there were a number of candidates, and he was he as was high as could be when he interviewed and landed it well. And um, the reason he tells that story is to say, I, wasn't, I was way past the point of getting high. Right? The, I had been on drugs so long and it had required so many drugs that I just had to take them to feel normal. There was no escape for me anymore. He writes... Um, that he uh, he writes that um, fentanyl, which is one of the things he was on, is 20 times more potent than heroin and intended for use by terminal cancer patients. Before interviewing for the job, I put four 100 microgram fentanyl patches on my stomach, four times the prescribed amount, and washed down 16 or 17 Norco, eight times the prescribed amount, which is the equivalent of two Vicodin, uh, with some Gatorade. And this was his regular routine. Right? He's deeply addicted to drugs. And it finds life difficult. Uh, anytime there's stress or anxiety in his world, he would turn to drugs and need more to try to remove himself from that pain. But he tells a story of, of one week of his teaching career as kind of a lens of his experience overall before he would slide into greater addiction and ultimately have to seek recovery. Uh, but in this week, he was, he was a popular teacher. He got uh, stellar reviews. He was uh, thought of as uh, spurring critical thinking and uh, had high expectations for writing. He was wildly popular with students and with parents alike. And so kids felt freer to come to him. And one girl came and said, um, listen, I've got to talk to you. And, and, 
and vent his ear and said, yeah, I had a party and the football team was over and, and two of the players stayed over and they didn't treat me well and I don't know what to do. And he said, well, we have to go report this. And she says, no, I don't want to report it to the administration. I don't trust them. Says, I have a legal obligation. We have to go and talk to the counselor. We have to report this. Uh, I'm sorry. And so seeking to try to get out of the situation as quickly as he could, he took her to the counselor and then went over to the VP's office and reported this to the VP. And the VP said, okay, never breaking a smile. Thanks for letting me know. We'll take care of it. And he closed the conversation. He said, hey, you're going to the football game Friday night. And Jason Smith proceeds to describe the, the, this week in high school where he has a number of different students coming up with, to him with incredibly difficult cases, which he's the one to invited, being invited into. And the other teachers are giving him a hard time for not attending the football game, which this is a huge football town, and um, expecting him to be there for, on Friday night. Another student comes to him and says, hey, uh, this other student is addicted to heroin. I don't know what to do. And it's the superintendent's son. And so he has to go and talk to the superintendent and tell him that his son is addicted to heroin, to which the superintendent replies, this is bad, right? He says, yeah, it's bad. He says, okay, what I want you to do is uh, call my wife tonight and tell her what's going on and explain this to her. He's like, why do you want me? Why am I going to call your wife and tell her what's going on? And, of course, the way that story ends is, uh, is he's going to leave his phone on and, call, and be called by the mother that night. And the superintendent ends the conversation with, hey, but we're going to see you at the football game Friday, right? And so the essay, which is superbly written, goes on, and you end it, and you get this sick feeling. Because suddenly you realize that you started with a teacher who is profoundly addicted to narcotics and thought, how could he be teaching? What's wrong with our system? And by the end, you go, oh, here's a community that's chosen to be addicted to football and is ignoring every situation of hardship and brokenness in the midst of their community. You think there's, there's no redemption in the story. There's no, there's no one who's actually engaging what's actually happening around them and trying to make some sense of it or try to heal in the midst of it. It's a hopeless picture, but that's the, ho- the hopelessness of addiction. And we could, we could replace drugs and football with anything. A hundred different things, right? Anything that says when we get into that place of, I don't like what's happening, I feel uncomfortable, I feel upset, I'm, I'm, I'm filled with angst, I'm going to turn to something. And Gene Bishop says, I'm going to turn to a mission in which I tell people about forgiveness that I haven't actually extended. Or the teacher, I'm going to escape through a nice recipe, a batch of drugs, or the community says, we're just going to escape into our football games and the success of our football team. But do, not, do we not engage life like that all the time? We think, we persuade ourselves that it's so much easier rather than dealing with the brokenness and entering into that hardship that we just pretend, that we just back up and we say, you know, I'm going to focus my attention on something else. Noble or not noble. They're both the same. Gene Bishop's no different than the drug person who's no different than the community. It's all the same. This is what Gene Bishop started to realize because initially she, um, she just decided this is the way I'm going to handle it. The death of my sister and this tragedy and I'm going to forgive, I'm sure. And she goes, huh? But what she can't deal with is uh, her anger, her frustration. 
She's disgusted and she finally gets to the point which she's been avoiding through the mission that she's assigned herself to is to say, I'm really mad at God. Why did he allow that intruder to choose my sister's house? And why did he make it that he couldn't get out in time? And why did he have to kill them rather than simply tying them up? Over and over and over, question after question, why did it have to transpire this way? And she realizes, oh, God's the one I'm mad at. I don't like the situation he's established at all. In fact, God, I wish you weren't in charge. In fact, if you would just remove yourself from the situation, then I wouldn't have to be so angry and so hurt. In fact, I wish you were dead. And that's the point at which Jesus can say, I've already let you do that. I've let you put me to death so that this could be healed. And it's nice to finally actually meet Gene Bishop and to engage you over the hurt that's happened. And this is when Jean Bishop starts to realize what new creation is. She starts to realize that she possesses the Spirit, and she starts to become something that she never was before. The first thing that she does is sit down and write a letter. And you know how her letter to the person who killed her sister and her uh, ex-brother, or her brother-in-law, uh, began? Was, uh, it began with an apology. She wrote, I'm so sorry. I have talked about the forgiveness that I have extended to you for 12 years. And I have never said to you that I forgive you. I've waited for 12 years to hear from you. The individual had never admitted guilt, had never said he was sorry. And so she said, I'm starting a conversation if you want to have it. But I just wanted to let you know that I'm sorry. Sorry to the person who had killed her brother, her, her brother-in-law, her sister, and that young child growing in the woman's womb. That is some new creation. Something that's wholly different than the creation that we experience. Something that now is a mission that God has assigned to Jean Bishop rather than a mission she has assigned to herself. Jean Bishop, making boatloads of money, left the corporate law world, became a Public defendant. Right? She defends criminals in prosecution. And she argues vehemently against sentences that do not uh, allow for parole. Her, because, um, and this happened in Illinois, and if you kill two people in one situation in Illinois, you go to jail without any potential for parole. It's a life sentence. And now she argues that people should be given an opportunity to be uh, redeemed and paroled. And this is only born out of two, uh, what the, the disciples, of course, are entrusted with. It is a picture of verse 23. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Right? Did you realize what you were signing up for to be a believer in Jesus? How do you like that in your back pocket? If you forgive anyone, they're forgiven. And if you withhold forgiveness, it's withheld. Sounds powerful, doesn't it? How are you going to wield that? Well, it surely is not something that is carte blanche, and Jesus is going to humor all of the vindictiveness in your heart. But it is Jesus articulating that there is a new community. See, what's been going on that John has been telling us, even more so than the other synoptic writers, is that people who come to believe in Jesus are being kicked out of the synagogue. They're being divorced from their entire community. And Jesus is saying, you know what, that's okay because that's not my community anymore. 
You are now the community of the living God, and you have the authority to declare the boundaries of that community. And first and foremost, you're to be a community that, like I have declared forgiveness to you, you should declare forgiveness in spades to those around you. But there are going to be cases where you should withhold it, where there is not repentance and it should not be granted and people should be held accountable. And this is, of course, the kind of mission, the kind of um, community that Gene Bishop, located in a church, but also reflecting the beauty of that of that community extends that forgiveness to those around her. See how Jesus has redefined in the upper room, in the briefest of passages, your mission is completely different. You go into the world as Jesus has been sent. Creation has been redone. You might say, how in the world could I have the power to go in a way that Jesus went? And And Jesus is saying, it's okay, I'm giving you the Spirit. You are finally being, you're a receiver of the living God, and you will be enabled in this task. But it may be very lonely. You might think, you say, no, there's a new community. In this, I'm establishing my church. And as you fellowship and work together, you will extend forgiveness and be the sweetest community on earth because of the forgiveness that you extend. And you will hold accountable sin for those who do not repent. And coming full circle, I suggested at the beginning that you do not experience the shalom of God. You do not know the peace that Christ holds out to the disciples three times in this passage. And it is because you assign yourself your own mission. You do not believe creation has been remade, but having received Christ, you simply live in the creation the same way you always did. You believe that the Spirit has come upon you and you are recast and You assign yourself your own mission, and the community, well, are we a community that's characterized by radical forgiveness and the restoration of relationships? See, it's only when we actually take in and embrace the mission and creation and community that is the result of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we actually begin to to understand and to experience the peace that is on offer. Do you want more of Jesus' peace? It is not an easy road, and it has never been promised as an easy road. But the first thing that you have to do is on a heart level, and your heart level is this, where do your addictions lie? Three examples. In self-righteousness, I'm going to make my own road in mission, Gene Bishop. Drug, any kind of pleasure, pursuit, and escapism. Or the school. Let's find a good narrative, a noble narrative that we can all get behind and will distract us from what's going on around us. Where do you place your time and your energy and your resources? Gosh, if you are not willing to be, to, to weigh your heart, then please don't complain to me about not experiencing the peace of Christ. How many of you will walk out of here today and go into this week and say, oh yes, I'm very serious about Christ. And the majority of your time and your energy will be spent on, well, am I doing, doing okay with God? Let's see. Um, have, have I done what my wife has on a list for me to do? Have I spent time with my kids? Are finances in order? Am I providing the right opportunities that the people around me are providing for my kids? And you say, yeah, okay, I guess I'm doing okay. Right? And you've just thrown four fentanyl patches on your belly. There is no difference. You've distracted yourself. 
so that you don't have to actually walk in and say, I'm hurt and this stinks and God, I'm mad at you. And you don't actually meet him. Instead, you prevent yourself from meeting him. So number one, be serious about weighing your heart. If you're not, you're pretending at relationship. In fact, you're, you're going out of your way to make sure that God won't know you and that you won't know God. Number two, we say here sometimes that form precedes substance, which means you act and engage in ways before it's actually true of your heart. So what does it mean to participate in a mission that's already laid out by God? Think of the simple things that are before you this morning. The Green Door 5K. A day which is a fun day. A day in which all of the resources go to serve, uh, to meet the missions that CRI is engaged in and have which go to participate in the uh, particular relationships and roles in India that we are participating with. And so of all the ways that day could be spent, why not spend it in trying to make it the best race ever in the sense that the most resources go to the kingdom being extended, right? To the G brothers having a home for boys, just as an example, right? Right? We Think about all the resources you spend and all the things that you provide for your kids and all the things that you want squared up in a box. The G brothers invest in people who have been orphaned for all intents and purposes in the deep forest, have nowhere to go, no education, no opportunity, and they love them. They bring them into a community, into a family, and they are at the disposition of a landlord who may evict them at any time for their boy's home. How could we not sacrifice much to guarantee that they are in a place that's safe and they will not be evicted? That makes me want to say, okay, if I'm serious about engaging a mission that God's laying out rather than a mission I have for myself... I need to go recruit some neighbors to run that day, to register, or helping hands. You know, we are invested in India. We are not changing that at all. That's only going to grow over the years to come, but we have to increase our love for our community so that they know we're here and value it. There's an announcement in your worship guide that coming up at Helping Hands, we're trying to build up the community circle, which is something that we, some of us volunteer with, And it simply helps helping hands to meet the needs of the community. You realize that there are poor in our community? That kids go to school hungry, and some kids are gluing together their shoes because they can't afford a pair of shoes. And that it wasn't that long ago that there was a homeless child sleeping in the covered slide at Harry Myers Park because he didn't have a home. The only source, resource, serious resource in our community for helping these cases is helping hands. Participate in a mission that is bigger than yourself and the mission that you might assign yourself by laboring. Come that morning. Hear what's going on. I'll be speaking. Rob Sheely will be speaking. And consider ways in which you actually can put hands and feet to the mission of God. Jesus says, as I was sent, so send I you. Does your life look anything like Jesus? If not, then maybe it's time to make some changes. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that your life is perfect and your sacrifice is perfect and you have redeemed us, but we ask your forgiveness because we grossly underestimate what you have done. Forgive us for having such small minds and hearts and reducing your death and resurrection to simply some kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card. 
rather than the recasting of all creation, the recasting of mission, the recasting of community. All things have been changed. All things have been made new. Help us to believe this so we do not continue to avoid your peace in our laziness and distraction and addiction, but instead to experience and live in your peace. By your mercy, we ask this morning for you to wake us up. And in waking up, to know the joy of the peace that you offer. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.